from Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Reuel asked his daughters. What do, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So the first time I ever met my friend Dave, who farmed up the creek from me in Illinois, he, he was wearing a shirt that said, Dave, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, and this uh, Dave was, uh, was and is something else. He was um, a local in Tiscoa, 
And by that point, I had lived in Tisqua a number of years uh, and tried to integrate myself with the local culture, but I think I would have had a hard time convincing someone that I was originally from around those parts. Dave eventually placed membership at our church, which was part of this intentional Christian community called Plow Creek Fellowship. And on multiple occasions, Dave would say, if you would have ever told me I'd be at Plow Creek. He was just shocked that he would end up at this church. And there, was many, there were many great things about my friendship, but Dave still are. Uh, but one was that he helped me understand Tisqua. Dave knew its people, he knew its quirks, its stories, its gossip. He knew the good, the bad, and the ugly of Tisqua. But David also traveled around the country. He'd done youth with a mission. He'd lived and uh, he'd visited a couple places around the world. He'd interacted with a variety of people. And so he could somehow straddle quirky Mennonite intentional organic farming community with quirky corn and beans Tisqua culture because they both have their quirks. Dave was my cultural bridge between these two worlds. And today, friends, we are introduced to Moses, the man, the myth, the legend, the hero of our story. He's not just the hero of the story of Exodus. Moses really is no, in the nation of Israel, there's really no uh, greater hero than Moses. Even with us, in, in the new, in, uh, as Christians, outside of Jesus, there is no one that is likely more well-known and plays more of an outsized and heroic role in our story than Moses. And so today we get we get the backstory on the hero. Our passage picks up today where we left off last week. There's been a, a chilling edict given by Pharaoh that every Hebrew boy must be thrown into the Nile River. So anyone, any of you parents, when you were, uh, you were having your first child, did you ever look around the world and think, what kind of world am I bringing my child into? I feel like this, I think I remember my parents saying this, I feel like this question must arise like in every generation. So it's like the threat of nuclear war, it's a global pandemic, it's climate change, it's 80s fashion. I'm not sure, I was born in 1980s, so I'm not sure what the big fear was then, but (laughs) something that brings a bit of trepidation as you reflect on the world that awaits your child. But let's be honest, like, I think most of the time it's a little bit hyperbolic. Most of the time it comes, especially for us, from a, from a bit of a privileged perspective. But if anyone had the right to ask this question, if anybody had the right to feel this way, it was Moses' parents. If anyone got a pass on saying, like, what kind of world am I bringing my child into? It was Amram and Jochebed, Moses' parents, who are bringing a child into the world, which at best, best case scenario, the child is lucky enough to be enslaved, oppressed, and in harsh labor. And that's if it's born a girl. But we read, they do have this child, and there are these hints throughout the story that this is no ordinary child. For example, this child is born to Levite parents. Uh, the, the tribe of Levi, this is the tribe that will eventually be the mediators between God uh, and the Israelites. So we, we've got our, our first hint there. He's also got this interesting line. It's like, this is a fine child. It's kind of, what? what does that mean? Why is the writer of Exodus telling us this is a fine child? Why this little detail? Well, this, this word in Hebrew is tov, which means good. And, and this, is, uh, this is creation language. Think about it. God said there would be light, and there was light, and God said the light was good, tov. Okay, so there's this hint that this little boy is not an ordinary boy, that he's somehow going to play some role in recreating God's people. He's going to play a central role in that work. 
But we got another hint too that's a little less subtle. When Moses' mother realizes she can hide the, bo- the, the boy no longer, she makes this decision to, to coat this papyrus basket with tar and pitch and put it into the shallows of the Nile River. And again, we, we kind of know, know this story so well, I think we just need to stop and like think about what a desperate and agonizing decision this must have been by Moses' mother. This would have been the ancient equivalent of, of a mother pulling up at a hospital and, and dropping that baby on the steps of that hospital and driving away because she feels like she has no other option of keeping that, that boy alive. So if you are a mother, like every instinct in you tells you not to do what Moses is doing. But her, the mother is desperate. She sees no other option. In your notes, if you have your Bible open, you'll see often the, there'll be a little comment that this Hebrew word is for basket also means ark. And that, for us, should trigger a memory of another ark, of another, uh, another uh, waterproofed and pitched uh, little, little ark that floated on the water and acted as a vessel of salvation. So here we have this, like, this little bitty, like, honey, I shrunk the ark, floating down the Nile River. All right, a cultural reference. There, you caught. Good. And this little, this little ark floats down, and, and Pharaoh's daughter, she sees it on the riverbank. She hears the baby cry. She's concerned, and she acts to save that baby. So, so notice this. Pharaoh's daughter, she sees, she hears, she's concerned, and she acts to save. And that act, we, we should note, like last week, is an act of civil disobedience against Pharaoh. Just like last week, like with Shifra and Pua, uh, this time with Pharaoh's own daughter, there's this order that's been given by Pharaoh that, you know, the, you're supposed to throw the, the boys in the river, but, but Pharaoh's daughter does the complete opposite. She's pulling the boy out of the river. So again, in our story, we have a woman acting defiantly, which then allows the big story to move forward. Moses will then become the son of... Uh, of Pharaoh's daughter eventually, and he grows up in a royal Egyptian household. Moses is what we would call a foundling. Uh, this is a historic term to describe an infant that has been abandoned by its parents and then discovered and cared for by others. And, and we see in this story a foundling who grows up to be the hero. But interestingly, this is a story that kind of pops up again and again in, in history, in literature, and television. So for the Israelites and others living in the first century, first millennial B.C., this story, it, it could have reminded them of this, other, this well-known story about, uh, about King Sargon. And the story about King Sargon, he was from uh, Akkad and Mesopotamia, and, and lo- this is long before the Exodus. He was born to a priestess who put him in a basket in the Euphrates River. And Sargon was found and rescued by a gardener, and eventually he grew up to be king. Okay, so foundling becomes hero. Uh, we're also, we also have these stories that circulate around us, like so, uh, of founding becomes hero. So some of you uh, might think of William Shakespeare's play, The Winter's Tale. In this play, one of the heroines is Perdita, which means the lost one. And Perdita is abandoned on the seacoast, but is discovered by a shepherd. And then she's brought and raised up by that shepherd. Okay, Foundling becomes heroine. Others, like myself, we don't think of Shakespeare. We think of, of this guy right here. If you can get the first slide, we think of this guy, Grogu, little baby Yoda, who was a foundling. And you can do the next one. 
and the Mandalorian, who was also a fan foundling with two foundlings together. Isn't it? This is a really moving story of one foundling who finds another foundling, and by his creed, he is required to raise that foundling. Thanks, Ron. Guess what? Grogu grows up, becomes a hero. So, someone a, a couple weeks ago, after a lot of my Star Wars references, said to me, like, maybe I should watch more Star Wars. And my advice, if you have like extra free time and you want to like do some research, like I would go the route of Shakespeare and not Star Wars. There's a little more, I think there's a little more shelf life to Shakespeare. Okay, do both maybe. Do Shakespeare and Star Wars. Here's my point. We might not catch it. Moses has got hero written all over him. He has got hero written. He's got all the signs. This kid is going to be someone special. He's a good kid from a Levite parents. He's a foundling floated down in like a baby Yoda-sized ark that's discovered by royalty. Moses has hero written all over it. But here's the deal. It ain't always easy being a hero. Because one day Moses, after he had grown up, he steps out of the palace. He steps out of the comforts and the privileges of his life growing up in the house of Pharaoh. And he goes out to the field where he sees this labor, this harsh labor we were talking about last week, this backbreaking labor, making bricks and working in the fields. And, and Moses doesn't just see it and keep going. He sees it and he stops and he watches them do their labor. So Moses has empathy for these people. He's come out of his palace. He sees the people. He has empathy. But but there's something else happening. There's something lit within Moses that just burns in him. A burning sense of injustice and anger is ignited. So Moses, in in our story, he sees a Hebrew. uh, He sees an Egyptian wailing on a Hebrew. And at that point, Moses sees something and he snaps. And now in our story, all of a sudden, Moses is the one doing the beating. Moses is the one wailing on the Egyptian. And and Moses apparently just keeps wailing and wailing until suddenly Moses realizes this guy is not breathing anymore. Moses has killed this guy. And then Moses has to hide what he's done. So he, he, he buries the body, but like not like in sand, but not like on the beach for fun. He's got to take this bloody, lifeless body that he just beat to a pulp, and then he's got to bury it in the sand. And the next day, I'm sure I would hope, still reeling from the, what transpired the day before, Moses goes out, and then he, gets, he sees another fight. But this time, it's not between an Egyptian and a Hebrew. It's between two Hebrews. And they're, the, they're wailing on each other. And Moses is like, what are you guys doing? Like, you're, you're, what are you, why are you hitting each other? You're brothers. But then rather than being received by the, as the hero... You know, the one who, who yesterday Moses swooped in and, and came to the rescue. Moses is rebuffed. He's mocked. Who are you to, to rule over us, to judge us? What are you going to kill us to? Which I assume stung Moses, but it also it made him afraid. Word had gotten out, and now Pharaoh catches word of what happened. And now, uh, now Moses has been both rebuffed by his own people, but now he's being hunted down by his own household. Being the hero ain't always easy. And neither is it straightforward because the Moses of the Exodus, of this story, he's a complicated character. He's got a complicated past. He's got a checkered past. He's an orphan. He was raised in the royal house. He, he's a man with a tender heart, but he's also, he, he also has a blazing hot temper. It turns out 
that the foundling turned hero is a complicated story. Okay, so Moses, let's keep going. Moses takes flight. You know, Pharaoh's going to have to kill him. He takes flight. He does kind of notice, he does like this mini exodus. He's going to leave Egypt. He's going to head what we think probably is east-northeast to Midian. And he's going to sit down at a well. So who, you don't have to raise your hand, but who's reading through Genesis right now? Like, if you are, I wish I could, like, come give you a gold star right now. Wouldn't that be great? I could put it in your Bible. But I'm not going to do that. But here's the benefit you get. On your radar should be wells. Okay, we've just, if you're in our Midway Bible plan, we've read stories about wells. You know what happens at wells in the Bible? Romance blooms. It's true. It was at a well that we read in Genesis that Jacob fell in love with Rachel at first sight. He weeps. He sees her. He weeps. He starts kissing her. Uh, the love story of Jacob's father, Isaac, and his mother, Rebekah, also goes back to a well. And now again, we have in our story here in Exodus a love story that takes place by a well. See, wells at this time, um, they're not just like places to get water, though they were that. They were the social hotspots of the day. As one commentator points out, they were like the, the central meeting house place where travels could meet local people. They could, they could make inquiries. They could, uh, they could possibly be expected to be invited over for hospitality. They were, I was thinking, they were like the drive-ins of my parents' day, the mall of my day, and like TikTok of today. And again, we see here Moses is very sensitive to injustice. He comes, look, he, he, again, he, he, he comes to the rescue of these seven daughters. They, they've come, they want to water their flock, but they can't because they always get driven away. Moses allows them to then uh, water their, their, um, their flock. So then he gets invited uh, to an honored guest. So last time he did something and he ends up getting hunted down and, and to possibly killed. This time he gets a, an invitation to go to the house and he ends up, he ends up getting his, meeting his wife, Zipporah. And Zipporah have a son named Gershom. Now, for us, like, names don't typically mean a lot. Like, I mean, they're a way to get our attention, but names are important in the Bible. They're more than just a way of getting someone's attention. Names tell us something about that person. Gershom sounds like the Hebrew word, a foreigner there. It'd be like, uh, you know, if one of us named our children exile. So, like, every time that child was at a doctor's office and somebody called exile, they'd have to explain to the receptionist, like why they're called exile. And there'd be a story behind there, right? This is what's happening with Gershom. He's got a story behind his name. And Moses will go on to say this line. He says, because I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. So it's not really clear. Like Moses is now in Midian, which is a foreign land, but he came out of Egypt, which is also a foreign land. So like, what's he talking about? Maybe both. Moses is homeless. In Egypt, he was a Hebrew. He didn't fit in there. But now he's a Midian and he's a foreigner there. He's homeless. He's a stranger in a strange land. There's a, there's a term that I, I remember, I, I think I bumped up against it, maybe staying with some missionaries, uh, called third culture kids. And, and what third culture kids, it's a term used to describe uh, kids who are raised in a culture or a country of origin that's, that's different than their, their parents. And so... Um, Oftentimes you hear missionary kids will be called third culture kids because often they're very much immersed in the culture and language of another culture. And people who have studied third culture kids will tell you that there's, there's numerous benefits to being raised this way. So you, you often become, you, you grow up bilingual. 
uh, you have an expanded worldview. Like you've been exposed to various cultures and people. Uh, people that are third culture kids tend to be more tolerant of people who are different than they are. Um, but there's some challenges to being a third culture kid. And one of those is that a kid can feel culturally rootless. For example, if you go up to a third culture kid and say, hey, where's your home? They have a hard time answering that question because where is home? Like when I go back on furlough to wherever, the United States, that doesn't feel like home. But when I'm in this country, this doesn't feel like home either. And they say, don't fully fit into either culture or people um, that they're in. It doesn't feel like home. And it can bring up these challenges like, who am I? Like, what's my story? What's my history? Who are my people? And in Moses, I was thinking in many ways, grew up as a third culture kid. He grew up in an Egyptian household, but he's not an Egyptian. He then moves out towards his own people, the Hebrew people, but he's rejected by the Hebrew people. He's then forced to flee. Ends up, his wife is now Midian, so she's not Egyptian. She's not Israelite. She's Midian. And he's got this really complicated story. He's in between all these cultures. And he's gained, the, the plus is he's gained a lot of benefits from them. I'm, he's, I'm sure he's bilingual. He's got an expanded worldview. He's got cultural intelligence. Uh, he's probably tolerant. He has empathy. We've seen that for people who are different than himself. But there's also challenges. Because when I hear Moses say, I've become a foreigner in a foreign land, I hear him say something like, who am I? Like, where's my home? Who are my people? Moses here, he's a sojourner, and he's destined to remain homeless the rest of his life. He goes from the royal house in Egypt with all its privilege to being a shepherd in a foreign land. And here as a foreigner in a foreign land, as an immigrant, he begins to build up a life for himself, for his wife and son. So like this, you know, like this is the challenge. Like things move super quickly in the text, and we just find out he's a Midian, and then all of a sudden we're back in Israel. But the other, a couple other writers in the Bible help us kind of piece together. He was there probably 40 years. 40 years in Midian. Meanwhile, though, back at the ranch, not all is well. The scene, so in our Bible, the scene quickly shifts back to Israel, okay? And, and Moses, he got out of Dodge, but guess who's back there? It's the Israelites, and in case we've forgotten that the yoke of slavery is still there, the oppression, the cruel labor, it's all still there. Like Moses has done his mini exodus. He's out of there. But the people in Israel, they're all back there. And into our story steps God. Up to, interestingly, up to this point, God has one mention with the, the midwives. That God's been basically absent from our story. And, and at some point, you've got to be thinking, like, where is God in all these? The Israelites are enslaved. Has God forgotten about God's people? Does God care about oppression and injustice that's, been, that's being inflicted on these Israelites? But look what happens here. God looks on the Israelites and their suffering. God hears their cries. God is concerned about them. Does that sound familiar? God sees. God hears. God is concerned. It sounds like Pharaoh's daughter. She sees the baby in the basket, she hears the cry, and she's concerned. We, up until this point in our story, we've seen oppression and injustice from, the van, from like the ground level, from the vantage point of Pharaoh's daughter and Moses, because Moses also saw this injustice. And now all of a sudden it's like we're like taken up like 10,000 feet in the air. On the sky, we see oppression from the vantage point of God. 
And we see a God who sees, a God who hears, a God who's moved to compassion. And if this pattern continues, God will act. But God does something else too. God remembers. And like this sounds like, this, like whenever you read this, you're like, what? That's strange. Like, was like God like, like doing something? He forgot there was a cake in the oven or what? Like what, what's going on here? No, in the Old Testament, remember, it's, 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 not, it's much more than like overcoming forgetfulness. To remember in the Old Testament is an expression of God's loyalty and constancy. It's as Jansen says, recalling for the purpose of taking action. It's recalling, it's remembering, not just because you forgot, not because you forgot, because you're going to take action. In other words, like God is about to act. Okay? The cries have come up and God is about to come down. What's God going to do? Tune in next week. Same bad time, same bad channel. But what do we do with this story? That's where we're going next week. What do we do? Like, what does this story have to say to you and me today? Here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that God uses complicated and checkered pasts and, and people for his purposes. God uses complicated and checkered pasts for his people, for his purposes. Stories that look, in a lot of ways, like ours. Moses is a foundling. He's an orphan. He's a third-culture kid who struggles with this question of, around his identity. Who am I? What's, what's my history? Where's my home? Many people, for various reasons, have felt kind of rootless. What is my story? God will eventually use that third-culture status to make him a spokesman uh, to the Egyptians and a leader to the Israelites. Moses experienced challenges as a kid. But guess what? He also experienced a lot of privileges. He grew up in Pharaoh's household. Like many of us can recognize that too. Many of us might have grown up with a lot of privilege. The reality is that basically all of us, who, except for one, I think, were raised and grew up in the United States, we have been afforded massive benefits and privilege. Okay? We have, compared to the world, massive assets and opportunity. Like we grew up in households of big-time privilege. And like Moses, what a lot of times happens, it's not until we step out of our palace, we step out of our bubbles, that we even realize we have that privilege. We, we, maybe we go on a trip overseas, maybe we meet someone who's different than us, and we hear their story. Maybe we realize that not everybody starts on the same base, and we didn't even realize the privilege we had. And like Moses, many of us are like, what do I do with this privilege? Because sometimes, like Moses, we recognize our privilege and we have good intentions and sometimes we, we still think we make things worse. We complicate them. It's not easy. It's complicated. Or, or, like, or some of us are like Moses in that we have inside of us anger. And sometimes we do something. Sometimes it's just, it just happens in a moment. You, I hope. I hope we're not killing anybody. I hope that's not it. But we say something, we do something. I mean, I, I could tell you some stories about myself. And in that moment, we cause a huge amount of pain to the point where years and years later, that little moment of a flash of anger has had all these effects that extend for years. That's a source of pain all these years later. In this story, we see that God uses complicated people with checkered and privileged histories like Moses for his purposes. But not just Moses, because I think what's so fascinating about the story of the Bible 
is like, if you're looking for perfect people for God to use, like, God, the Bible is not the right place. Like, go find, like, a kid's story for that. Again, I keep going back. It's like, go find a kid's story that that's not the Bible. If you're looking for perfect people, you won't find them in the Bible. Take, for example, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples. He has the privilege of spending three years with Jesus. He's like, he gets to do what all of us wish we could do. We get to go everywhere Jesus does for three years, right? He gets to soak in all the teachings. He, he's so like, he, he, I'm going to die for you, Jesus. At his moment of testing, Peter crumbles. He denies Jesus. He curses Jesus. Like the apostle Paul. Paul Paul's got education. Paul is brilliant. Even people who are not Christians would usually recognize how brilliant Paul is, uh, the apostle Paul. Paul is zealous. But Paul has misdirected his zeal and his gifts. And, and he's using them to persecute the early Christians. Okay? That's who God chooses to take his gospel to the Gentiles. Peter is the one who eventually found that be an instrumental part of that church. Again and again in the Bible, people uses people like us with complicated and messy and privileged past for his purposes. But here's the deal. It ain't always easy. In fact, I think I can tell you this. It never is easy. Moses, as we read, was, was orphaned as a child. He was rejected by his own people. He went from the privileges and comforts of a royal palace to a man on the run. He spends 40 years out in Midian tending flocks, building a new life, putting the past behind him. And God finally at that time comes to him and says, you're ready. You know, notice how God didn't come to, to Moses when he was 16 and he thought he knew it all as so many of us do when we're 16. No, God comes to him later in life, after he's been through the school of hard knocks, after he's spent 40 years, perhaps in silence, in the wilderness, tending animals as a shepherd. And that's the moment when God comes to Moses and says, hi, let me introduce myself. I'm Yahweh, and we got a lot to do, so let's get to work, because you're ready. Time and time again in the Bible and in our lives, God comes to us after everything has been stripped back in our lives, after we've spent years in our own wilderness and exile, after we maybe thought that the direction of our life was set, maybe we're ready to retire, maybe we are retired, or maybe we thought we were washed up. Maybe we thought we had failed so bad, so spectacular like Peter, that God was done with us. And God comes up to us and says, hi, my name's Yahweh, and we've got a lot to do. So let's get to work, because you're ready. God wants to take you and your assets and your liabilities and your past mistakes and your messy and complicated family story, and he wants to use it for his purposes. When we choose to put our trust in Jesus, we are, in a sense, saying to him, I can't do this myself. Heaven knows I've tried. And despite my best intentions, I keep messing things up. We offer to Jesus our complicated stories. We offer to Jesus our quirky personalities, and we all have them. We offer to Jesus our mistakes, and we hand that over to Jesus, and we, said, we say, you know who I am, and you know it ain't always been pretty, and you know there's some skeletons in my closet, but I trust that you can make good out of my mess because that's who you are. Because you, Jesus, 
are the real hero of this story. You're the one who sees and who hears and who is concerned and who acts to save. You're the one who heard the cries and groans of your good creation. And in your great love and concern, you came down to us. You are the one who left the ultimate royal palace with all its privileges and you made yourself a slave so that you could bridge the gap between heaven and earth, between humans and God. You, like Moses, were rejected by your own people. You were hunted down by your enemies. But rather than killing your enemies and burying them in the sand, you forgave them. And then you died for them. And you died for us. Being the hero of the story ain't always easy. Thank God the hero of this story is Jesus.